The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So welcome back. I'd like to talk now about just a little bit of historical background about people who have chosen to develop renunciation but are not ordained. It'll be fairly short because I then want Mirka to give us a longer account of a particular person who did this. But there is a term which has been mentioned now by both Ruby and me, which is anagarika, which I think comes the closest to capturing this idea. So this term is actually common throughout the Pali Canon. The Buddha, before his enlightenment, when he was a bodhisattva, was called by the term anagariyam, and it appears literally hundreds of times in the early discourses and in all the major texts. I did a little search, and I came up with 408 instances in the suttas and 32 in the vinaya of this word. So it was well understood that this was a description of the Buddha uh, before his enlightenment. Etymologically, anagarika means homeless or homelessness. It's a noun, so... And it's from the Sanskrit root agara, which means house. And then you put the on on the front, and there's a sense of going away. It means to go away from or to leave. Actually, it's a cognate with the uh, Greek root agora, which came to mean marketplace, and which we know from things like agoraphobia. Although the Greek, of course, came after the Sanskrit, but just for those who are interested in linguistics, So etymologically, it has the implication of someone who has left the comforts of home. And so this could mean literally, you know, of course the Buddha, you know, the the story of him is that he had a comfortable home life and chose to leave it in order to pursue his spiritual path. But we could, you know, we could take the spirit of that and say that leaving the comforts of home means that we no longer indulge in sleep in the morning and you know, seeing food as, you know, something that we're having just for pleasure, but more for supporting our practice. So in the spirit of this, we can leave the the comfort aspect that we have of our home, even if we're still living as lay people. Now in practice, um, the word, actually now the term anagarika is more specific than that. It was adopted uh, by the later Theravadan Buddhists, such as in the Thai forest tradition that um, Ruby was mentioning to mean an unordained mendicant. So somebody who is intending to ordain, they've come and they've taken the eight or the ten precepts, they dress in white typically, uh, but are not uh, not ordained. It's even an official step along the path to ordination in the Western Thai forest tradition. You guys should say the Western forest tradition. I think a person needs to be an anagarika for at least a year before becoming a novice monk at this point. So this term has now kind of a specific meaning within the Uh, monastic community here. But there is some historical precedent for using the term anagarika to mean someone who's living halfway between lay and monastic. And there have always been people who kind of did this. They're not not talked about as much. But I'll I'll, I'll give one example of uh, a person in Sri Lanka about 130 years ago. So I want to tell a little story, actually. So imagine, imagine the scene in Sri Lanka, which was then called Ceylon, um, in the later part of the 19th century. So the, the British were ruling there at that time, and there were a lot of Protestant missionaries 
um, there incorporated in the culture. And this was a time when there was uh, a lot of tension had been building between the missionaries and the local Buddhist monks. But it was also a time when, as often happens, because the British had been there for a while, when they were living together, there were starting to be some kind of mix, mixing between the Protestant and the Buddhist traditions in ways that I think people didn't even completely understand at the time. And then thrown into this mix was the presence of uh, Buddhist converts who were Westerners who wanted to follow the ways of the Buddha. In particular, there were uh, two famous ones, Madame Blavatsky and Colonel Olcott, who were the founders of the Buddhist Theosophical Society. This, you know, we don't talk about these guys much, but because of them is a lot of why we ended up uh, having the Buddhist tradition in the West in the form that it is here in the insight tradition. Or at least, now there were many steps between then and now, but nonetheless, they were some of the pioneers of connecting the West to Buddhism in Asia. So what was happening at this time with all this interesting mix of stuff according to the social history that was written by Richard Gombrich, is that uh, Buddhism at that time in Ceylon was moving toward having lay leadership rather than monastic leadership. There were starting to be the rise of lay Buddhists who were serious practitioners, and they were starting to run, for example, the Buddhist schools that were there. And it was just, you know, because that was considered more appropriate work for lay people than for monastics. And so the lay leaders began naturally to be the ones who had a more prominent role in quote-unquote defending uh, Buddhism from these Protestant missionaries, if you want to think of it that way. Or maybe more benignly, we could say helping define its key tenets and kind of, because, you know, they never really had to explain themselves when they were the only religion there. And then the Protestants show up and ask a lot of questions. And so there was sort of a need to say, well, no, this is actually what we're talking about here. And it turned out that a lot of the a lot of the people doing that were lay leaders and that the monks had taken kind of a passive role because they felt that the Vinaya forbid any kind of social or political involvement. So they were stepping back and consequently they were kind of losing power. So it was an interesting time to, and that was maybe one of the first times that lay leaders became very prominent in a Buddhist society. So at this time, there arose a devout young Salinese man from a middle-class family and he was deeply devoted to Buddhism, and um, he wanted to, in fact, uh, practice renunciation. He wanted to renounce sensual pursuits, but retain the ability to be a social and political activist because he was strongly uh, wanted to defend Buddhist culture in Sri Lanka at that time. So he invented a title for himself, and he called himself Anagarika Dharmapala. And this was the first time according to Gombrich, that Anagarika was used as a title, like I am Anagarika X. And that before it was this more general term, you know, the Buddha was the Anagarium who had left home to pursue his spiritual practice. So he was a um, large personality kind of fellow and became a national hero for his strong pro-Buddhist positions. And this could never have been done by a monastic, but he wanted to declare that he was a very strong follower. He wasn't just a regular layperson, so he had this title on Agarika. And he became affiliated with this Theosophical Society of these two converts who had come for a long time. And he eventually founded an organization that you may have heard of called the Mahabodhi Society, uh, the purpose of which was winning back Buddhist ownership of the Bodhgaya site in India, which had long ago become a Hindu, you know, become a Hindu site. 
So he was convinced, you know, this is our history, so I'm going to win that back. I won't go on uh, too much about his life, but it's, what's significant is you know, that, he, that he took on this title and used it as a way to mean a person who's a devout lay practitioner but is participating fully in society. He had no intentions of ordaining, although as a little side note, he did ordain right before he died, but nobody knows that. <laughs> so, um, now, after his death, it did happen, by the way, that the, uh, the site in Bodhgaya became Buddhist. He didn't see that. Uh, he didn't live to see that. But his efforts did eventually bear fruit in 1953. And it's worth noting that the first Buddhist superintendent of the Bodhgaya site was a man named Anagarika Munindra. <laughs> and that is who Merck is going to tell us about. So sometimes I wonder if we might repurpose this term Anagarika, and you know, it's been used a number of different ways throughout the text, throughout history, and if, I wonder if it's something that's relevant in Western society also. So I'll leave it there, but it's essentially for lay people who have chosen not to take refuge in the ordinary aims or habitual ways of living that we have, like what Ruby was talking about, but also do not tend to or, intend to ordain because of wanting to retain some kind of mobility in society, some kind of relationship, some kind of lay community, something like that. Okay.